morning, everyone. It's really good to be able to add to the welcome Simon gave at the start of the service. And we are starting this morning, uh, as has been mentioned, a new series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Usually here at Great Vic, we are uh, just working through books of the Bible, reading the text, explaining it, and applying it. But every now and again, we'll take a little break and we'll focus on a subject that we just want to dig down a little more deeply into. And so this morning, we're going to be studying uh, for the next few weeks the person and work of the Holy Spirit. By, uh, to begin, I want to um, set in place two foundational building blocks uh, to get in front of us to really um, give us a foundation to build on. The two things I'm about to mention are probably uh, among the most important spiritual, scriptural discoveries I've made in my own life as a Christian. These two truths have shaped and impacted my relationship with God more than anything else. Foundation block number one, it is possible to know a great deal about God without having any real knowledge of God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, we read these words. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Notice the Lord does not say that he understands and knows about me. Imagine you meet someone who never had a bar of Cadbury's Dairy Milk, my favorite bar of chocolate. They ask you, what does it taste like? And you say, well, it's smooth, it's sweet, it's chocolatey, the texture is perfect. By your explanation, does that person know what the chocolate bar tastes like? What do you think? Well, in a sense, you could say, well, yes, theoretically, they know. They could say, if someone asked them, what does that bar of chocolate taste like? They could say, well, it's smooth, it's sweet, it's chocolatey, the texture's perfect. But you and I know that there is a world of difference between them knowing theoretically about the taste versus actually putting a bit of that chocolate into their mouths and experiencing it for themselves. There's a world of difference between knowing theoretically about the taste of a Cadbury's Dairy Milk chocolate bar and actually tasting it on your tongue. Well, that is very similar in our relationship with God. There is a world of difference between knowing all about God and actually tasting the living God in the deepest parts of your being. J.I. Packer, in his classic Knowing God, has asked this question, what were we made for? And he answers like this, to know God. What should be our highest aim in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. As I said, it's one thing to know about God's love. It's another thing to experience the comfort of his love. It's one thing to know theoretically about a God of grace. It's another thing entirely to live daily in the goodness and sweetness of his grace. 
It's one thing to know all about God's joy, but it is another thing to have your heart full of it. The heart of the gospel, the Christian message, is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has removed all the barriers that would keep us from a deep, experiential, real relationship with God. So that's the first building block I want us to get in place as we begin this series. There is a world of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And that applies to the three persons of the Godhead. You can know about the Father, but then to know the Father in his fatherliness is another thing. You can know about the Son's salvation, but to know the Son and his salvation is different. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. You can know all about the theory of the Holy Spirit, but then it's another thing to have real fellowship with the Holy Spirit in your life. So second building block then to put in place. In Scripture... We are not just invited to know God in a vague, superficial way. We are invited to enjoy real fellowship with each of the persons of the Godhead. This might be a bit new for some of you. This transformed my Christian life and my communion with God when I came to understand it. And I was first helped to see this truth in Scripture by a 17th century English theologian and pastor named John Owen. He's written a book called On Communion with God, and he points out in a chapter entitled Communion with Each Person of the Godhead, he he points out passages like 1 John 1, verse 3 where we read this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Owen also points out this passage from 2 Corinthians 13, 14 that Matthew read for us earlier. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there, clearly in Scripture, we are called to enjoy fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and whatever the Apostle Paul means by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are to enjoy this. So, communion or fellowship or enjoying a relationship, not just with God in a vague way, but actually personally enjoying our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, seeking to cultivate a relationship with each of the persons of the Godhead. Now, we could provide plenty of other texts that demonstrate that, but the point is pretty clear. Owen states, this spiritual and holy communion of Christians with each person of the Godhead is very clear in Scripture. As I said, this transformation for me, or this this, um, understanding totally transformed my experience of prayer before God and worship of God and singing hymns like holy, 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 thinking of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who I'm worshiping and adoring. But this is not just a discovery that has transformed my life. You can read testimonies of other Christians down through the years who have come to be transformed by understanding more about how we build a relationship as Christians with our triune God. 
A modern writer called Nicky Cruz in a book called The Magnificent Three, he was a former New York street gang member, he writes of how coming to know the triune God was the most important part of his journey as a disciple. And this is quite a long quote from this book, The Magnificent Three. But listen to how this guy saved uh, from a background in violence on the streets of New York came to understand how important fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is in our day-to-day life. Nikki Cruz writes, Something has emerged in my walk with God that has become the most important element of my discipleship. It has become the thing that sustains me, that feeds me, that keeps me steady when I'm shaky. I've come to see God, to know him, to relate to him as three in one, God as Trinity, God as Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. What I'm describing is something different from merely believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. I've always believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, but I'd never experienced God personally as three in one. It was at first merely a doctrine in which I believed, but now it has become a truth of everyday life. God has developed in me a sense of the separate relationships which I can have with Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. He has shown me the strength that comes from those relationships. He's taught me to feed off the Trinity for my daily sustenance rather than just having some vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true. Now, we don't want to be people like that, that have a vague sort of assumption of the doctrine of the Trinity. We want to to have fellowship with our triune God, this to be a real life-giving doctrine to us, not just something for academic theologians way up in an ivory tower. Now, why do I begin introducing a series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in this way? Well, here's why. Because I am burdened that in our age, we do not know appropriately what it means to enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That is, we don't know appropriately what it is to enjoy the greatest gift that the Father gives to those who follow his Son. That is the Holy Spirit. He is the greatest gift that the Father gives to those who follow Jesus. Think about it. Most of us here, we can probably fairly warmly relate to the Father and the Son. We can grasp their relational identities pretty easily. We can enjoy the Father in his fatherliness. We can enjoy the Son as our Savior, our Lord, the one who said, I've called you friends. But if we're honest, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we're a bit unsure of who he is, where he fits in, and even if we're supposed to have a relationship with him. J.I. Packer put it pretty bluntly in Knowing God, the average Christian is in a complete fog as to who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. So, That's why we're having this series. And the goal of this short series is to help us grow in our understanding first of who this Holy Spirit is, then what he does, and then how we can walk in the Spirit and enjoy what the Apostle Paul calls 
the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives. We do not want to just know about the Holy Spirit. We want to know the Holy Spirit. So there'll be three main sections of the series. This morning, the worship of the Spirit. Then next week, the works of the Spirit. And then third week, walking in the Spirit. I've set aside three weeks for this. It may take longer, uh, uh, depending on, on how we're going and how you're reacting to it. But to begin this morning, we're going to think of the worship of the Holy Spirit. And I really want you to pray that the Lord would give you insight and understanding this morning. We're going to be covering some pretty deep waters. We know the doctrine of the Trinity is both the most important doctrine in Christianity, but it's also the most difficult doctrine of Christianity. And what we're going to do this morning is answer a simple question on the identity of the Holy Spirit as we think about worshiping the Spirit as God. We're going to ask just one simple question, who is the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to answer it in this way. He is the third person of the Godhead. And then to quote an early historic confession, what the earliest Christians believed. He is the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Isn't it wonderful to think that the earliest Christians wrestling with the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, after working hard, came together to articulate this kind of statement on the Holy Spirit. And down through the years, the church has been confessing and affirming, yes, this is what we believe about the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, we'll explain what that means, and who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. Now, to get what all of that means, we're going to need to revisit a basic primer on the Trinity. Uh, I think it was about a year ago now, um, we spent five weeks looking at the doctrine of the Trinity here at Great Vic, because I don't want us to be a people that just assume this doctrine, but that know it and love it dearly. So we're going to have to go back over some of that, or for you who weren't here for the Trinity series, um, this will be pretty fresh, but it's really important that we understand these basic truths about who our God is. So let's try to make it really clear Uh, and understandable, and the reason I've put the PowerPoint together is really to give us a bit of a visual connection point as well. So, first, we confess together there was never a time in which God did not exist. Second, there was never a time in which God was only the Father. There was never a point in time where it was just the Father without the Son and the Holy Spirit. Third, There was never a time in which God was only the Father and the Son. Fourth, there was never a time in which God was not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we can conclude God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and fully possesses all the attributes of God. Now we could ask, well, hang on. Isn't the Father just a bit more powerful than the Son? And then even more powerful again than the Holy Spirit? 
Or we could say, well, isn't the Son a bit more gracious and loving than the Father? Or isn't the Holy Spirit just a bit more personal than the Father and the Son? Or a bit more holy? And the answer to that must be a resounding no. Whatever we affirm of the Father, we may affirm of the Son and of the Holy Spirit with respect to their attributes. As the Father is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, eternal, independent, just, unchanging, faithful, wise, holy, and good, we can say all of those things about the Son, and we can say all of those things about the Holy Spirit. He is powerful, all-present, all-knowing, eternal, independent, just, unchanging, faithful, wise, holy, good. This is the spirit we worship. But if that's the case, now stay with me. You could ask the question, well, well then how do the three persons of the Godhead really differ? If they're all the same, how do, how do we distinguish from them? Is that not just a sort of mash that is God? No. There are two ways we distinguish between the persons or the members of the Godhead. The first we call the eternal relations of origin. And what this means is essentially we distinguish between the persons of the Godhead according to how they have been revealed in Scripture in their relationships eternally with one another. So, for example, first of all, we think of the eternal relationship that has always existed between the Father and the Son. The Father has always been the Father, and the Son has always been the Son. The Bible teaches that the Son is what we call eternally generated from the Father. We call this eternal generation or eternal begottenness. You ever heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son? What does that mean? Well, he is the Son who is eternally generated from the Father. This does not mean that the Father created the Son. The Son doesn't borrow his divinity from the Father. He is always the divine Son who shares the same divine essence as the Father. When was the Son begotten? At what point in time did the Father radiate forth or generate the Son? We call it an eternal begetting. There was never a time when the Son was not the Son of the Father and the Father was not the Father of the Son. So you distinguish the Father and the Son from their eternal relationship with each other. The Father is always the Father of the Son. The Son is always the Son of the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. They are both fully God, all the attributes of God, but the Father is different in his fatherliness. The Son is different as he is the Son. This is how God is revealed in Scripture. There is a second eternal relationship then that we call eternal spiration theologically. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds out or is breathed out from the Father and the Son. In John 14 to 17, Jesus teaches that he will send the Spirit from the Father. 
In John 20, 22, Jesus dramatizes this reality when he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not created. The the Holy Spirit does not borrow divinity from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds out from the Father and the Son. At what point in time did this begin to happen? It is an eternal procession. There was never a point in time where the Spirit did not proceed out from the Father and the Son. There was never a point in time when the Son was not eternally generated from the Father. The Father has always been the Father of the Son. The Son has always been the Son of the Father. And the Spirit has always proceeded out from the Father and the Son. Now you could be sitting there going, Steve, why do we need to know this? For this simple reason. This is how God has made himself known to us in Scripture. And so we always want to press in as much as we can to the mystery of our triune God. And I remember one of my professors at seminary, Dr. Greg Allison, he said, and when you get so far and can go no further, you fall on your knees and you sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And so that's the first way we distinguish between the three persons of the Godhead, their eternal relations of origin. But the second way we distinguish between the three persons of the Godhead is understanding how each person takes a leading role in particular areas of the economy of salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when I was at school, there was a class called Home Economics. Economics speaks of the way the home is ordered. We can also speak of salvation economics. How is salvation ordered? And here's the key point I want to make, and I really hope you can track with this. Those eternal relations in the Godhead, in a sense, in the mission of salvation, they get flipped inside out, or the eternal relations of the Godhead give shape to the order of salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. The Father takes a lead as the originator or source of every blessing we enjoy in the gospel. It's the Father who sends the Son to save us and to redeem us. There is an appropriateness, we could say, about the Father sending the Son, for it reflects the Trinitarian nature of the Father and Son's relationship. Think about it. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Father sends the Son because the Son has eternally generated out from the Father. So it's fitting that the Father then, in the mission of salvation, would send forth the Son to save us. And this is brought beautifully together in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Son then, he becomes and takes the role as the accomplisher of our salvation. We read in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father sends the Son to accomplish our salvation. The Son comes into the world in the incarnation. He bears our sin in the cross. He dies in our place. He rises again to give us new life. But the Father doesn't just send the Son to accomplish our salvation along with the Son. 
He sends the Spirit to apply the salvation that the Son would accomplish. The Holy Spirit would take all of the accomplishments of the Son and he would make them known to us who are in Christ in our daily lives. In Romans 5, 5, we read that God pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We could say again, there's an appropriateness to the Father and Son sending the Spirit to apply our salvation because it reflects the Trinitarian nature of the Spirit's proceeding out from the Father and the Son. So the Father saves by sending, the Son saves by accomplishing our salvation through his death and resurrection, the Spirit saves by applying the accomplishments of the Son to our life. Think about this. The first member of the Godhead who made any direct contact with you was the Holy Spirit. The first person of the Godhead who touched your life was the Holy Spirit convicting you and illuminating the glory of Christ. And then you came to Christ. And in union with him, you're you're washed from all your sins. And now you're fit to come to the Father. I like to think of this in a kind of huddle illustration. I love rugby. We've all had a great weekend with rugby this weekend. But sometimes you'll see a team coming together and the whole team huddles. Uh, They all put their arms around each other in a big circle. And then if you can imagine, sometimes someone's late coming to the huddle and so the huddle breaks open and invites that player in to the huddle to join it. In a sense... This is a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in the gospel. To quote Fred Sanders, the good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of the triune life and has given us a share in that fellowship. The Father has sent the Son and the Spirit to save us. The Spirit opens our eyes to our need of Christ. He unites us to Jesus. The Spirit brings Christ right into our inner being through his indwelling. And then in the power of the Spirit and in Christ, we can enjoy the Father. We are brought in to the inner dynamics of the triune fellowship. Not to be made God, but to enjoy the very fellowship that the Father has eternally enjoyed with the Son and the Father and Son have eternally enjoyed with the Spirit. We are welcomed in to the fellowship of the Godhead. This means, when we think specifically of the Holy Spirit, that we are called to praise and honor, adore, obey, trust, and thank the Holy Spirit to the same extent and with the same fervor that we praise God the Father and God the Son. Each person of the Godhead, fully God, each inseparably involved in bringing about our salvation. So there's no sense in which the Father's kind of main God, the Son's kind of like subordinate God, the Spirit's like even more subordinate God. Now we wouldn't say that, but sometimes in our practical day-to-day lives, we can almost treat the Holy Spirit like he's not even there. And I want to ask 
you this morning, in light of this introductory teaching, might you have downplayed the person of the Holy Spirit in your relationship with God? Are you rightly honoring God as God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to do just as we press on, and I don't know a more engaging way to do this, so I'm, I'm sorry, but what I want to do now is just anchor everything that I've said in Scripture. Just so you can see, it's not just theological, academic exercise. I want to sort of pull all of the roots uh, and show us where all these truths are rooted in Scripture. And I'll move quite quickly through this, but here is what the Bible says uh, about the Holy Spirit on two levels. First, the Holy Spirit is God, and second, the Holy Spirit is not just some kind of wind or force. He is a person. So we're going to look at some scriptures that speak of the Holy Spirit as God, and then some scriptures that speak of the Holy Spirit as a person. Um, I think I have six of these, and I'll move through them pretty quickly. So what we're doing now is thinking about where do we see in Scripture the divinity of the Spirit? First, the Holy Spirit was present with the Father and the eternal Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, before creation. We see this in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, John tells us in John Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word. So we know in the beginning, Jesus was there with the Father. We know the Father was there at the beginning, saying, let there be light. And here we're told in Genesis 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was present. Father, Son, and Spirit at the beginning, saying, let there be light. Creating. Second, God creates by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath, same word for spirit, ruach in Hebrew. By the ruach, the spirit, or the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So we say the Father creates by his word, his Son, through the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, inseparably involved in the work of creation. Third, Jesus says in John 15, 26, that he will send the Spirit who proceeds out from the Father. This reflects on the eternal relation of the Spirit who proceeds out from the Father and Son eternally. Four, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as another comforter in John 14, 15, and 16. We read this earlier. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus sees himself as the first helper sent from the Father. As he goes to the Father, he will send from the Father the Holy Spirit who will be another helper like Jesus to come and be with the people of God. So Jesus seems to speak of the Spirit on an equal par with himself. Five, Whenever Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lie to the Holy Spirit, they are said to have lied to God. But Peter said, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. Six, the name of the Holy Spirit is placed alongside of the Father and the Son in a way that makes absolutely no sense if the Holy Spirit is not divine. So in the, sermon, in the Great Commission, for example, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit is not divine, equally divine with the Son and the Father, that makes no sense at all. When someone becomes a Christian, see that they're baptized and the name of the triune God is put on them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, scriptures that speak of the Holy Spirit as a person. It's important that we establish this because some people might say, well, is the Holy Spirit not just some kind of powerful force that emanates out from God? And we have to answer and say, no, he is not uh, a powerful force emanating out from God. He is a powerful person who is God, not just a power. So, for example, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as a he and not an it in passages like John 14, 26. I know we could caveat the Greek grammar in various ways, but it certainly raises an eyebrow that we see Jesus, instead of him saying, it, the Holy Spirit, it will teach you all things, he says, he will teach you all things, and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It's interesting, secondly, that in Acts 13, 2, we read the Holy Spirit speaks. He speaks through his servants, makes his will known. Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then in various other scriptures, we read of the Holy Spirit doing things that only a personal being can do. In Romans 8, 26, we read of the Holy Spirit interceding for us, praying for us. In Ephesians 4, 30, we read that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts 5, as we've just said, we see that we can lie to the Holy Spirit. These things can only be done by and to a person. You can't lie to an abstract force. You can't grieve an abstract force. You can grieve a person. You can lie to a person. An abstract force cannot speak. A person speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks. So, that's been a lot for you to follow, track with, and take in this morning. And Stay with me in this series if you can, because essentially this morning is setting up a lot of what we're going to move to next week as we get to the works of the Spirit. Because if we're going to appreciate him and praise him and worship him and walk with him, we need to know what he does in our lives. And that's going to be the works of the Spirit that we consider next week. But I do want to land this with some initial implications as we close this morning. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, we should worship him and appreciate him along with the Father and the Son. But the big question that we all have, I'm sure, is this. Well, how do we do that? In what way are we to share fellowship with the Holy Spirit in a way that rightly honors him? How do we give attention to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit following the contours of Scripture? Because in many ways, as we're going to see, the Holy Spirit is a lot like a floodlight that floodlights a beautiful building. You don't typically stop and say, wow, let's look at the floodlight. You look at what the floodlight lights up, that beautiful architecture. In a sense, the Holy Spirit floodlights the Father and the Son. And yet, in Scripture, we're given revelations about the Holy Spirit. So I think every now and again, it's good to be like sort of that guy that's researching a torch before he buys it. I want to look at what this torch does. I want to look at how powerful the light is. I want to see what settings there are on it. I want to look at the torch for a while. I want to look at the floodlight. That's what we're going to do. But we should expect the the ministry of the Spirit to be a floodlighting ministry. 
And yet, what we're going to do over the next few weeks is try and look at the light, the floodlight himself, to appreciate how he sheds light on the Son and the Father. But what I want to do now is just land by giving you two practical ways just now we can start thinking about how we enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit in a way that rightly honors him. Two ways. First, by looking to him and appreciating his role as our helper. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit this in the passage we read earlier in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, there are chapters and books that have been written on how you translate the original behind another helper. And I'm going to summarize it like this. One who comes to your aid in a variety of ways. This is who the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son to be one who helps you in your Christian life in a variety of ways. Jesus was our first helper from the Father, sent to save us. The Holy Spirit is the second helper who's with us now, given to help us live gospel-shaped, God-honoring lives. We're going to look at this next week, but think, he helps us by being the Lord and giver of life. He gives us spiritual life. He sustains our spiritual life. He breathes spiritual life into us. He helps us by teaching us. He is called the teacher by floodlighting Christ and the Father. He helps us by interceding for us when we can't pray for ourselves, Romans 8. He helps us by giving us assurance of our salvation, bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He helps us in our evangelism, giving us courage when we lack it. He helps us his church, by giving us a variety of gifts empowered by the Spirit so that we can be built up. He empowers us by giving us an, an appetite to read the Bible, by giving us glasses to see and understand the Bible. He helps us by stirring us to pray. He helps us by awakening our deadening effects because of the fall and giving us new life. And our appropriate response to the helping ministry of the Holy Spirit is a life lived in total dependence on the Spirit. And this is what burdens me the most. That we are failing to live lives totally dependent on the strengthening, helping power and help from the Spirit. Have you recognized how much you need the Holy Spirit today? To understand a word of what I'm saying now. Have you recognized that you're invited in scripture to cultivate fellowship with the third person of the Godhead, this helper, the Holy Spirit? There is a, a world, it's like a mine that you, you discover and you just enjoy all the gems and beauties and glories of this mine. So begin to be praying even now Lord, as we engage in this series, send your spirit to help me understand and relate to him rightly. The second way then we can begin to engage in this fellowship with the Holy Spirit is by speaking to him. Can we pray to the Holy Spirit? Can we sing to the Holy Spirit? Can we worship the Holy Spirit? Spirit? Yes! Absolutely! If he is God, and he is a person, then yes, absolutely. 
The best example we have of this is Ezekiel 37. That famous passage where Ezekiel is standing looking at a valley of dry bones. He's called to preach to the valley of dry bones. Asking if they can live. And then he cries out to the Holy Spirit, the breath, the Ruach of God. He's told to cry out to the Spirit. To make them live. And then the Holy Spirit works in power with the word of God and a valley of dry dead bones becomes a living and mighty army. There's a beautiful picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The minister of the word preaches, the Holy Spirit fills it with life and and by the power of the Spirit, the power of God's word, dead people come to life. Dry Christians become vibrant Christians. Weak Christians become a mighty army. Man, that's what we need a great Vic. And so we can speak to the Spirit. We can pray to the Spirit. We can sing to the Holy Spirit. But we must try to learn to do that along what we could call the Trinitarian grain. Rejoice in the Father and his fatherliness. Rejoice in the Son, our Savior. Rejoice in the Spirit, the one who convicted us of sin and opened our eyes to see Jesus. Pray and ask him to be the one who gives you life. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you appreciate Jesus. Help him to ask you in Christ to help you draw nearer to the Father. Pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. But along the way, stop to enjoy and commune with the Spirit. Enjoy and commune with the Son. And then enjoy the Father as your beloved Heavenly Father. So as we begin this morning, make it your prayer just now. Holy Spirit, come and breathe new life in me and into my relationship with you, with the Son and with the Father. And we'll come back next week, God willing, to look at all these wonderful works in a lot more detail. Let's pray. And I'm going to pray using the the prayer of St. Augustine. It's a prayer that he prayed to the Holy Spirit seeking new life. Let's close with this prayer. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me, then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a beautiful modern hymn that has been written to help us sing and express our appreciation to the Holy Spirit. I don't know if it's ever dawned on you that as we sing the hymn, Holy Spirit, Living Breath of God, we're singing a prayer to the Holy Spirit. So let's engage with the Spirit of the living God as we sing and worship him together. Let's stand.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. Um, Just a a wee word to any students who are staying for the lunch.